Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's my co-host, Canucks Insider, Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic, here with you for the next couple of hours. <laughs> Today on the show, we're just going to make sound effects like a bomb dropping. <laughs> Woo! Oh boy, do we have a show for you. Woo! Oh boy. Uh, and that show <laughs> is brought to you by Avenue Machinery <laughs> and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. And uh, as a tease, answer. <laughs> well, make sure, not to, make sure to stay on until 1225 when we're going to play Yakety Sacks for 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> As a tease transfer, people uh, will get a chance to check out the Kintech Studio on their televisions a little bit later today. I'll tell you about Very more cool. about that later. Uh, but we'll get right into it. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Tech Line. You've heard by now, Canucks blow another lead, another multi-goal lead, lose 6-4 in Washington. <laughs> they are now 0-3 to start the season. And we've all heard it, and it bears repeating. It bears repeating. The first team, the first team in NHL history to have a multi-goal lead and lose in each of their first three games of the year. A truly spectacular, incredible, historic feat for the Vancouver Canucks here, Dancer. Uh, what do you even say? I mean, really. Honestly, what do you say? It's like, I just feel bad. I feel like there's fans who really bought into the Bruce Boudreaux glow-up and were excited for this season. And like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football, have had it pulled away from them. I mean, that's... The, the, you know, there are a bunch of local Denver Broncos <laughs> sports affiliates. Um, it's just tough. It's just tough. And what's upsetting to me, I think, as I consider all of this, is just how familiar it feels. Right? It, oh, it, yeah. It feels roundly familiar. This is the exact same issue as last year, with the exception of, you know, the goaltending struggling a little bit more than it did at any point last season, even in the early going. Um the team's five-on-five five game is fine. Mm-hmm. Elias Pettersson was great last night. Great. Scintillating. And yet, issues on the back end were so evident. Like, the the distinction between what guys like Dmitry Orlov and Nick Jensen, and I, I talked them up before the game, mm-hmm. and they were full value, right? Just absolute signal callers controlling the game from the back end in a way that we haven't seen a Canucks pair do in 10 years. I mean, l- legitimately since... What, Chris Tan of Alex Sedler? So five years, right? It's been that long since we saw a Canucks pair just p- behave and play with that level of sustained two-way competence. I guess if you want to say Hughes Tanev did it that one season, yeah. I'll give you that. Okay, so one pair uh, in the last five years. But, you know, that John Carlson shot, right? Unlike anything, that's just a shot that no Canucks defender can make. None of them. No, no one on this team can make that shot, even if all of their guys are healthy and in the lineup. There's no one able to do, make a play like that. Um, I just felt like in a game where both teams dumped it in a ton and where I would say for most of the game, perhaps Kuznetsov aside, Vancouver's forwards looked so much more dangerous than Washington's and it just didn't matter as both teams dumped the puck in a ton because Washington was bigger, stronger, won more battles, controlled the flow of play, and they did it from the back end. And the Canucks, I just don't know, I don't know how you handle – I don't know how you win – when your infrastructure on the back end is as limited as Vancouver's is, particularly when Quinn Hughes already looks gassed, like already looks, you know, like he's hanging on by a thread playing 27 minutes in the third game of the season. I know there was an illness. Perhaps that has something to do with it. Um, 
But, you know, I, I just I, how do you win like that? You just you, you don't win with a defense core like this. That's been my overarching commentary about this team for years. For whatever yeah. reason, we were doing it again. We're doing it again going into the season with high hopes. And, like, I just felt like last night was exactly that, sort of in a prism. Obviously, there's other issues. The penalty kill, a huge issue. Power play at least looked good. Power play looked good. Pedersen looked good. Like, mm-hmm. there's a couple things you could take, but no one wants to hear that. At the end of the day, it's hard to hold a lead. It's hard to compete with teams that have, you know, like the amount of credible NHL defenders that the Capitals have when you're icing the blue line the Canucks are and playing Kyle Burrows 24 minutes and playing Luke Shen 20 minutes. And it's just tough. It's yeah. it's just it's really hard to compete like that. The issues on the blue line, not surprising to most people, but they were most evident last night in a way that. You know, that you can always see the issues when you look for them, but they really jumped out at you last night in a way they don't necessarily always. But you, look, yeah. you mentioned we're, Kyle We're Burrows. used to watching the Canucks and ignoring those issues. Yeah. <laughs> it was impossible last night. You mentioned Kyle Burrows. You mentioned Luke Shen, Noah Juleson, the other guy playing down the right side. And the thing is, you know, you, you can point to poor play or, you know, all of those guys being asked to do too much, but it's not really their fault. Like, Noah Juleson has a brutal shift where he turns the puck over twice and it leads to a Capitals goal. It's like, well... Yeah, he should be in the AHL. And he otherwise he otherwise played well, too. Like, yeah. let's not pin this on no, no, Noah no. Juleson's and, nightmare you know, shift. Luke Shen, I, there were a lot of moments last night where I really noticed just how much offense he takes off the table. But yeah, that's not his game. You're not expecting him to go out there and be a dynamic offensive player. The goal of the organization has to be find somebody who can do that to play up in your lineup. Instead, they're stuck with Luke Shen. It's not his fault. It's just the reality of where they are. Even Kyle Burrow's playing as much as he did. Okay, hey, he's a gamer. He's going to give it his best effort. He did some good things, but it's still Kyle Burrows playing, <laughs> leading your team in minutes or almost doing so. It's just, it, it, it is absolutely not sustainable. And I thought that jumped out in a big, big way uh, well, last night. No way to fix it. Like, that's the problem. There's no way to fix it. There's no cap space coming, right? There's very few tradable assets that have significant value. I, I you know... It's a it's a multi year project, and even then, is going to be difficult because of the way that the Canucks have structured themselves, the way they doubled down on this team. Like the only way that this works in, in you know, and I use works in scare quotes because I've sort of been pretty consistent about commenting on how limited this team's ceiling is as a result of some of the commitments they've they've made over the past couple of summers, right? Like works in the you know, realm of like at least being fun, right? Like at least, at least get providing fans with like a Dallas Stars level of fun. <laughs> um, you know, that that's sort of the ceiling of this group. And the only way that happens now, I mean, you know, is if this team is at least in the playoffs regularly, yep. right? They doubled down on a group that hadn't made it in two years, made some commitments that are going to be tough to move and to start like this is really hard to swallow, right? Like it's really hard for this market to understand. Um, and all of that said, it's just three games. It's ugly. It's been really ugly. The players are already in players-only meeting territory, right? Yeah. We, we've already had the bagscape practice. Let's, so let's talk about this a little bit, because before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of what actually is happening, what they need to improve, and tonight's matchup with Columbus, it's, it's worth just taking a step back. Had the hard skate two games into the season. Last night, the coach calls them mentally weak. And they have your players only meeting after game three, right? And it just feels we are so familiar with how this is going, right? We're so familiar with the beats 
the obvious predictable beats of a team in crisis because we do it every fall or every beginning of the season. It almost feels like not usually in the first week ritualistic at this point, though, Drancer, right? It it feels like you're watching a a preordained ritual play out in front of your eyes. And I was just kind of thinking like, what's okay? what's next? So we've had the hard skate. We've had the coach calling them mentally weak players only meeting. So what do we do for we're due for some sort of like blow up incident at practice, you know, that, yep. that maybe goes a little viral and sure. the players have to comment the, on. The press conference moment where a question isn't answered. Yes, or is answered in a very pointed direction yep. at other teammates, right? Questioning the team's buy-in from a, from somebody within the room. We're, we're, we're on the way to, you know, the emergency press conference from management. Oh, yeah, right. The, uh, the, um... The classic like uh, state of the union, yeah, uh, where someone gets a vote of confidence that's yeah. actually quite the opposite. Where you have to call a press conference not because there's any news to discuss, just because everyone's so annoyed that you yeah. have to you have to go out there. And then there's kind of a, a a non-vote vote of confidence in the coach, right? Where you know, oh yeah, we think Bruce Boudreaux's a really good coach, but you won't say you're not going to fire him. Okay, here's my favorite one. Here's my favorite one. Um, insider reports about. The security of someone of a key decision maker's job, while noting nothing will happen until the organization has the right person yep. secured to replace them. I like that one. That's always a classic Canucks um, death spiral and, step. And at this point, and look, it's only three games, but it's remarkable how far how along inevitable. the road. Yes, how far along we are and how inevitable all of the next steps feel right now. Because again and again, I've, and I've made this point a lot recently, but just the team has not earned the benefit of the doubt for us to rely on its only three games. They just haven't. Of course, if you're going to look at this fact pattern and think, oh, I know which direction is this This is going. Because okay. we've seen it before. Okay, let me let me turn on the sunshine. Let me open the sunroof here and, and let some sunshine in. Um, sunlight being the best disinfectant. Yes, of okay. course. Thatcher Demko is second only to mark Andre Fleury in the NHL at the moment in goals surrendered above expected, according to Natural Stat Trick. Now, obviously, there's other outlets that sort of track that in a more granular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll ask Kevin Woodley at some point and get his take on exactly what environment Thatcher Demko's been behind. In my view, the Canucks have been more permissive defensively than the shot clock sort of makes it look like. Like, their five-on-five metrics look pretty good, but I actually think some of the chances they're surrendering are maybe higher value than, you know, shot attempts capture. Anyway, Demko second worst in the NHL by uh, goal saved above expected. I would expect Thatcher Demko to be good over the balance of a season. Now it's a goal. It's goaltending, right? Super volatile. Can't necessarily rely on it, but I think Demko's a good goalie. I don't think the Canucks have had great goaltending through three games. That happens. I'm not worried about Demko at all, and so. You know, on the positive side of the ledger, I expect the Canucks to win some games because they have an edge in net. To this point, they haven't won any games because they have an edge in net. uh, You know, that's going to balance out and begin to help this team, if not get on a roll, at least find their footing. Like, at least not look like this going forward. So that's one, one reason for optimism. The power play looked good again last night and will be good, right? This team has allowed too many goals, but they've also scored a fair bit, and that's what we expect. Like, a lot of these players, especially up front, have looked dynamic or even better than that, right? I don't think you could ask for more from, what, eight of Vancouver's top ten forwards, right? Like, you might pick two names that you want to see more from, but d- uh, the Bo Horvat-Pearson-Besser line looked great last night. Yeah, like, they did some good things. That, that line change worked for the Canucks. Curtis Lazar scored, right? That line change was widely questioned in the market. Looked looked good. Pedersen had a great game. You know, if you're looking for more from Vasily Podkolzin and Connor Garland and Andre Kuzmenko, like, 
I don't know what to tell you. That They've looked good. They've played well. There's a lot of good performances happening among Vancouver's forward ranks. The power play is going to be better. Their goaltending's almost certainly going to be better. So, you know, yes, they don't get the benefit of the doubt because of how much losing this organization has done the last eight years, but there are parts of their game, individual players within this system, uh, parts of their game that have worked in previous years where our priors should be strong, where, you know, the logic of what this team can do, roughly neutral five-on-five game, goaltending stealing a bunch of wins, and their power play eking out some close victories, like, that's still in play for them to get this season back on track and be on the playoff bubble as we expected. Very much so. It's just that it feels so dire because this all feels so familiar to Canucks fans that have mostly endured this for, you know, seven years with one playoff season. And, you know, I will admit, obviously there have been some some bad breaks along the way, right? The missed penalty on Quinn Hughes, even you could say Kuznetsov shouldn't oh, have been in the game. Ridiculous. Obviously last night, we'll talk more about that. He's been suspended for a game. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, having said that, you also I don't think you can look at any of the blown leads and say, oh, man, you just kind of write that one off because of a bad bounce or something, right? Like, Washington completely controlled that third period. We saw it with Edmonton, and it reminds me, this is going back a ways, but... They got, um, they got patted on the head. My dad and I were uh, were Vancouver Grizzlies season's ticket holders for Brutal. the last two seasons. They were in Vancouver, and I loved it. A testament to how much I like basketball. Do you even still though... have a Stromile Swift jersey? <laughs> hey, Stromile Swift had a nice NBA career. Um, yeah. It was decent. Not for his draft spot, but he, he turned himself into a player. I love Anyways, it, I saw a lot of losses, obviously. But it was not uncommon for the Grizzlies to have a lead in the second half, going into the second half, a double-digit lead often. And then you know what would happen? The other team would say, all right, that's enough. We're going to go in an 18-4 to run. We're going to flip the game, and then we're going to coast from there. Teams knew they only had to play a quarter, a quarter and a half against the Grizzlies. Just keep it close. Keep it within 10, 15 and you'll be just fine. Look, the Canucks are way more talented than the Grizzlies ever were, but it's a very similar sensation. Oh, it's close. Oh, okay, we're 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 clo- we're within reaching distance going into the third period. Yeah, we'll turn it on now. We'll, we'll turn it on now and we'll be fine. Sorry, this is minnows in soccer too, where for 70 minutes they can compete with the best of the best and then all of a sudden you've got Real Madrid scoring three times in the last 20 minutes or in football where a team hangs around, hangs around, struggles to move the ball, right? They're maybe down by two, and then their all-star quarterback comes on and leads the drive in the final two minutes. I mean, this is across sports. Like, the fact is is that there are there's no reason in hockey for it to be that easy for another team to just put the screws to you and completely suck the oxygen of what you're able to accomplish out of the game. And that's happened to the Canucks on multiple occasions. They've had at least one period in each game they played where they laid a complete, complete egg. And, you know, the fact that they're also frittering away these leads in the third period, the fact that they're struggling to sustain things in the third period, um, the fact that they changed all of their athletic training staff and medical staff, um, you know, at some point, at some point, and it's too early for us to know this definitively, but I, I sort of wonder about this club's fitness level, and that looms large as they go into a very winnable <laughs> game on the uh-huh. second game of a back-to-back in Columbus today, and then go to Minnesota to play another winless team, That's, playing their fourth and six nights. And that, and both teams, and I remember this came up a lot last season, right, where we would look ahead at the schedule and say, like, oh, that's a winnable game for the Canucks. And you know the people covering, following those teams and those markets are looking and saying, 
oh man, a, a, a tired Canucks team on the second half of back-to-back that hasn't won yet? This is a golden opportunity for Columbus to get their first win. Minnesota must just be licking their chops. They don't play again until Thursday. They haven't won yet. They just must be thrilled that the Canucks are coming in right now playing like this. And yeah. the thing that really stood out to me, you know, the conditioning, I... I hear you. The team looks slow, even slower than normal than they often do. They look like they're skating in mud for the most part. They also just and they're fading late completely. And it's but it's not just physical for me. It's the mental stuff too. And now that's related. You can say well, you, let's you start to get tired. You you make mental mistakes. But they just looked overwhelmed, like instantly in the third period. They looked overwhelmed. I mean, the Caps began to play responsibly, like we've seen every other team do. Right, once you stop feeding the Canucks forecheck. What can they generate, right? And that's what we see. Like, when it gets down to brass tacks and it's the last 20 minutes and you got to go win the game, repeatedly teams have started to be really sharp in terms of their decision-making, and all of a sudden the Canucks aren't generating anything, and it's not a coincidence, right? Like, if you're not able to attack as a five-man unit, if you're not able to break the puck out and manufacture offense by yourself, if you're reliant on other teams' mistakes to feed your attack, well, then you're not fully in control of your destiny. Right at some point, your opponent stops making mistakes if they're decent, and then what do you do? And that's sort of been my concern about this team for so long. And I just I think it's played out against especially the Oilers and the Capitals. We saw two battle-tested, cynical KG veteran teams get down to business, focus up, and once they've done it, the Canucks have struggled mightily to generate anything. I mean, they had as many shots on goal as the Capitals had goals in that third period. Uh, on the mental side, too, the Caps score the same goal twice. It's literally the same goal. It's the exact same seam from the left point to the right side. Demko's got no chance on either of those plays. How do you let the team find the exact same backdoor seam twice, five on five? In a game like that, like a winnable game, in in with in, in leverage, like in a leverage moment. I, I, I Honestly, baffling baffling and you can't explain that unless it's mental or physical fatigue you just can't not at this level yeah this i mean it's the players have said this right it's unacceptable it's inexcusable that starts to fall on deaf ears from a fan's perspective i think after a little bit when you say that and it never changes but it's worth reiterating a lot of what we're seeing is unacceptable is inexcusable for players at this level and players that again and a team with this, this ambition and this is not the look as much as we can talk about the defense and it is extremely extremely flawed we all know that let's not pretend like this is the Arizona Coyotes roster right like yeah there are other teams that are just as talented and more talented but there are plenty of really good NHL players on this team there's no reason that the third period should start okay yeah you give up a power play goal all of a sudden it's a one goal lead guess what you still have the lead. There's no reason your game should completely fall apart at that moment, and it should be turnover after turnover after turnover. And Reg texts in. We were talking about Demko a little earlier. He says, are we saying that the Canucks should have won some of these games if Demko bailed them out? The goaltender has been good. It's not spectacular, but he shouldn't have to be. Uh, he also well, says... No, but this team needs outrageous goaltending to win. This, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, and he also says, I swear if I see another drop pass at the blue line go to the opposition, my TV is going through the window, and I'm sending the bill to the Canucks. That's from Reg. And that's what it was in the third period. As soon as it was a one goal game, which it was almost instantly, the Canucks had almost no ability to dictate the flow or the pace of the game to string possession together outside of one shift for the fourth line, which kind of started with the Pedersen line and then Hoaglander came on and, and bridged it and the fourth line came on. That was heavy. But even then, did they get, did they generate scoring chances or just Not one. zone time? Not a single one. No, but I mean, that was against Jensen and Orlov and, 
you know, that's a really good professional pair. And even when they were gassed, right, did you notice the Capitals just went home, right? Like they were disciplined enough that no one put themselves out of position, right? They didn't, they stopped contesting pucks, right? Like that's... Yep. Well, and the other thing that stood out to me... They knew how that, to weather it. ...about that shift was, you know, and again, I, I don't want to keep harping on him because he's an incredible professional, a good guy, good story, and does and, his role. And maybe and maybe number 20 on the list of Canucks yes. problems. Again, so I'm not trying to, you know, do a heel turn on Luke Shen, but again, you have this really heavy pressure and the puck goes to the point and Luke Shen is there. And to his credit, he's not just firing it willy nilly into a, you know, into a, a, a Capitals player's shins and, and letting them clear the zone, but it's, you know, soft dumping back to the corner, restart the cycle. See, I like that way better than taking a point shot. Though. I like it better than the point shot, but you need to have players capable of making plays at a certain point, right? Yeah. Capable of helping you get to the dirty areas of the ice where you can generate a scoring oh, chance. And, and again, you see with Orlov and Jensen, the way that they can move about the ice and change the angles and create two-on-ones and make plays off of that. Yeah. Like, you need defenders who can contribute to the attack. And from one perspective, it is, you know, it's you can make it a positive for Luke Shen, right? Like, he's playing within himself. He's not taking the wasteful point shot. He knows what his capabilities are, so he's making the play. I, I took, I took the, the positive I took no, no, the positive No, and that's that. fair, but it also illustrates, again, there's the distinction between criticizing the player and criticizing the position he's been put in and what totally. the team is asking him to do. Well, and, and the overall roster construction, which remains flawed, right? And it's not just that the defense can't attack, as we're seeing on the penalty kill, right? but also all over the ice, it's that the forwards struggle to defend, right? It's that there's not enough high-end defensive IQ up front, there's not enough playmaking or two-way IQ on the back end, and as a result, you end up with this team where there are strengths, right? There are strengths, like various strengths, like, wow, they're, they have the personnel to be really good on the power play. They have a really good starting goaltender, right? There's some, there's some high-end talent. This is why the team always looks so good on paper, and then you see it, and it doesn't really fit together, right? And it's because the forwards aren't high-end defensive players. The defenders don't contribute meaningfully enough to the attack, except for Quinn Hughes, who's being overused at the moment and, and doesn't seem to be uh, at 100%. And what's the result? You have a, uh, The result is you have a team with a lot of good players who don't collectively find their skills summing up to a club capable of consistently winning games, like like contributing to the act of winning games with a mix of skills at the NHL level. That's what the Canucks haven't had for a few years. And I mean, it's tough because it's not on any one individual player. Mm -hmm. It's not on any individual coach. It's that this roster was constructed so poorly. And for some reason, after significant leadership change, has been doubled down on with predictable results. I mean, not that it's predictable that the Canucks would have lost right. three games in this fashion to start the season, but that they've... Predictable flaws cropping up. Predictable flaws cropping up, and certainly a lot of the same issues that we saw that sabotaged last season, that sabotaged 2021, right? That threatened but remained under the radar during the 2019-20 season. Uh, a lot of those flaws sort of permeating, con con being consistent year over year. It's... Uh, it's frustrating if you're trying to go kick, you know, that football Lucy's holding. Quickly, before we take a break, uh, Gemma Carson-Smith is going to join us on the other side. One thing that really stood out to me from uh, our pal Cam Sharon's tracking for this game, and we'll talk to Cam later in the week, was of all the Canucks scoring chances he tracked, I think two of them came from passes set up by a teammate. Yeah. The others were individual efforts or off a rebound. Yep. And 
that checks out with the eye test of watching the game. An inability to string passes together on the rush in the offensive zone. A lot of individual efforts from Pedersen and other players. You know, Horvat scores on the nice rush from Pearson, but it's not a pass. It's a, a shot and then a rush. And just you compare that to what Washington was able to do in the offensive zone, especially when they got serious in the third. It's night and day. Another game with also only one scoring chance taken or created by a Canucks defender. Mm-hmm. Um, on the season, I believe the Canucks are up to 10. Which is pretty close to what the Capitals generated in one game last night. One game. And, you know, again, I just, I don't know how you find a plan B if you're not able to connect play. You know, I, I you're just so reliant on your one trick. And if a team is mature enough to solve it, you're in trouble. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots of great questions and comments and thoughts coming in on the heels of another Canucks blown lead and a loss. 0-3 to start the season, uh, but it is another game day. They'll play the Blue Jackets at 4. Gemma Karsten-Smith from the Canadian Press will join us next to talk about the losing streak, what's ahead, what's next for this team. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance here with you. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We are here in the Kintec studio. And as a reminder, another Canucks game tonight, 4 p.m. puck drop against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, full pregame show is normal starting at 3 here on 650 with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. But this is this is a special, uh, Drancer. At 3.30, the pregame show is going to be on TV. Yeah, on Sportsnet Pacific. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah will prove that they uh, are not just faces for radio. They get to take it to TV. Pretty exciting. Uh, super exciting. Can't wait to tune in. Can't wait to see Sat and Riccio crush it Yes, in the lead-up. I mean, I'm going to be very interested to see their takes on the Canucks lineup tonight, right? Because then we're going to have it. Yep. The Canucks will hit the ice for warm-ups. There will be a ton to discuss once we see what decisions Bruce Boudreaux has made. Let's get into that with Gemma Carson-Smith. Absolutely. Speaking of crushing it, our next guest always <laughs> does that. Uh, she's from the Canadian Press, covers the Canucks, our pal Gemma Carson-Smith. Gemma, how are you? Oh, you two are so kind. <laughs> I'm wonderful. It's good to chat with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And look, Gemma, I mean, I guess I'll just start it off. Are you surprised at all that we're already at this point? Three games into the season, players-only meetings, the team is mentally weak. It feels like we're we're reaching another crisis boiling point already with this team. I will tell you that I write, did write a uh, some canned copy about Bruce Brujo um, being fired today. So that's uh, that's where we're at three games into the season. People are already talking about the coach getting canned. So uh, not what I expected. Not what anyone hoped. Like the expectations were so high for this team coming into the season, especially after uh, what we saw from them at the tail end of last year. Um, that I don't think anyone could have predicted this utter collapse, and that's what it's been. I mean, in the first game they just got McDavided, mm-hmm. but the 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 last two games in Philly and Washington, they just like. Collapse is not even a strong enough word. They and I, I I'm not allowed to swear, so uh, I, I won't use the term I'm thinking. Of. <laughs> well, and, and I think the really remarkable thing, and we Jancer and I were talking about this earlier, Jeff, is just how familiar it all feels, right? Like it feels like, oh yeah, we're just going through this process, going through the motions again that we've already become very accustomed to with this. Team. Oh, for sure, we've we've talked about all of these issues, um, defensive misplays, yeah, check. 
PK troubles? Uh, check. Do we have the right personnel? Uh, check. Like, this is not a new story. This is the exact same script we we're reading from last year. And these are all things that were supposed to have been addressed in some way, shape, or form in the offseason. Yeah, they didn't change the defensive um, core in really any substantial way, so you can't be terribly surprised. But, like, you you thought, well, I thought that we would have seen something different, especially in terms of special teams uh, and in, in terms of um, how the defense was playing. And to just see the exact same things that we saw at the beginning of last year, um, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling a little bit. Gemma, the Canucks had some of the best goaltending in the league last year. Thatcher Demko has been human to open this season. Is that sufficient to explain what we've seen, just the gap? in the quality of play in net he's getting zero support so um i don't think it's the entire story but it's, it has to be part of the story especially last night you let him six goals um it's not it's not entirely his fault but we this, there was always so much talk about how they couldn't rely on demko to be demko all season and yeah like you said he's human and he's looking human um especially uh, last night he looked human. So I, I don't think it's the entire story, but it's part of it. And uh, I'm intrigued to see what Spencer Martin brings tonight, if he does ind- indeed get the start. Well, and he has to get the start, right? He has to. He has to. Gemma, do you have any concerns considering the way that this club has faded late in every game that they've played, that perhaps fitness could be some part of what we're seeing? <laughs> I, I, it could be part of it, but I, I, it does seem to be like a mental thing. Like mentally weak is a mean thing to say about anybody, but totally, completely true. Yeah. Like it just seems I'm like glad I didn't say it. Up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I couldn't say it, but if the coach says it, I mean, like it's what he sees, right? And and doesn't Bruce look weary? He's oh. we're three games into the season, and he looks like he needs a long nap. <laughs> and I don't him. Even just the, the bit of, um, you know, it was short, but the Canucks put it on Twitter, the, his pregame or after the optional skate today, his commentary. I mean, I, I had the exact same reaction. It's just, it's so different than the Boudreaux we saw last season, right? Where it was always happy oh, and positive and kind of j- joyful. And now it's just, yeah, sad and tired is, is kind of the vibe I'm getting from him, Gemma. Yeah, like a bit of a kicked puppy. Yeah. And I don't blame him. And the other thing with the mentally weak thing is, <laughs> you know, I'm not even sure that I've often when a coach says that something like that about a team, right? It creates a bit of a firestorm or some controversy. Like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. is you know, is he being too harsh on the players? I haven't seen a lot of that reaction. No, I think zero people just kind of nodded and said, "Yeah, that sounds about right." Mm-hmm. I I agree. I don't. I think he's just calling it like he sees it, right? Um, and we all see it because we've all seen these massive collapses like this team is off to a historically bad start and it's not that they've lost so many games in a row it's the way they've lost three games in a row right it's to give up multi-goal leads to in three separate occasions is it's just confounding well and emotionally for fans right you get this high every time right it's like the Edmonton Oilers game, right? It's like, the Canucks coming out of the gates! They're the team we thought they were under! Oh, no, this is awful. And then Philadelphia, like, they're getting back on track against a bad team that's now beating them. And then last night in the third period. Um, what is your sense of where the market is at with this team? Is it too late for this club 
to make a good first impression in advance of the home opener? I think that people will still come out to the home opener because it's a home opener. and But I think the, the tone isn't what the club wants it to be. It won't be. You can't. Not like The best they can do, and I would be very surprised if this happens, if, is they go two and three on this road trip. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that they've showed us that they are up for that, right? And they're on the back end of a back-to-back tonight. Um, they've got injuries, all those things. So coming into your home opener, what, one, one, three, and one, or one and four, that's not a nice way to start the season in front of your hometown fans. But this market is feverish. Like, the reason that we are talking about all of these things, the reason that we're talking about all, all of these problems ad nauseum is because this market loves this team. So no matter what, they're going to show up. It's just the tenor. Are we going to hear the Bruce Arredis chance? I don't know. Uh, and that's, I, yeah, it's, I'm very intrigued to see what Saturday night looks like, but I think that it should still be a packed house. Gemma, what, is there anything you're seeing that you've liked? Like, is there any bright spot that stood out to you through these first three games? I've liked Pod Colson. Um, I, I like the way he's playing. I think he's, he's been, um, He's playing bigger than his size, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he's um, been a lot more aggressive than we expected him to be. Um, I mean, he's not all over the score sheet, but hes uh, I like the way he's playing at both ends of the ice, and I think he's not... Um, I think he's one of the only players you can say that about on this team. The defense has been so abysmal that um, any, <laughs> any not glaringly terrible spot that you can find you've got to celebrate <laughs> yay pod colson hey uh, Gemma, what are you thinking about the power penalty kill uh what are you seeing is this just too much deja vu all over again i like what bruce said last night about how well if they're scoring 15 seconds in <laughs> i'm obviously doing something wrong because duh yeah, it is deja vu all over again. And it's exactly what we were seeing last season. Like, how is this possible? Um, yeah, it's maddening. It's totally maddening. And I, like, you got to change that. You got to. Because this is obviously not working. They're not going to play their way out of it. Uh, you got to change things up. Gemma, the Canucks are now 0-3-0. And Boudreaux's in a contract year, right? Boudreaux's, it feels like, for all the changes in leadership we've got, we're having the same conversation in a lot of ways that we were having last year, where the team's losing, and and I begin to wonder, particularly with the Demko question tonight, right? Like, are the coaches' interests even aligned with the organization? Like, has anything changed with this club, or is this an extension of what we just saw with the past regime? Yeah, I think I think that that's that's pretty spot on. I think it's a lot of uh, we talked about this a while back about how um, Bruce and the front office don't always seem to be on the same page, mm. and I think that that's that's probably part of what's happening is that um, the way they they view the team differently, and uh, I don't think that's um, conducive to great on-ice results. I thought that they kind of figured out a way to make that work because we saw it work at the end of last season. But for whatever reason, I don't know if there's like discussions that we're just not privy to or what, but like something is 
there's something like fundamentally broken in the system. And I, it's, it's, I can't, I had no idea. I had no expectations that this would be where we're at and not in terms of um, three losses in a row to start the season, but the same exact things that we were talking about last year. It's crazy. And I just don't know how to explain it. Final few minutes here with Gemma Carsten Smith from the Canadian press on Canucks talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about, even going back to before the season started, Gemma is just, it, there's not necessarily a clear way to kind of switch tracks for this team now, right? If they're not able to turn things around and steady the ship, and if they do dig themselves a massive hole uh, like they did last season, I'm not really sure, other than firing the coach, I'm not really sure what else they can do. What do you see as kind of the next steps for this team and this management group uh, if the results on the ice don't improve quickly? Well, things are so bleak. Like, you just traded Jason Dickinson for a second-round pick, and um, Riley Stillman, like it, you've already started to mortgage the future for win now. The, there's not a lot in terms of um, development prospects coming up. Like it's things are bleak. This is not a good time to be a Canucks fan. You want them to win now because you need them to win now. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Beyond firing Bruce, and and that's that's not me advocating for yeah. firing Bruce. I'm just saying that like beyond making that change, I don't know what else you do because. Um, this is kind of what you got. You've got a lot of big contracts that are uh, are not easy to get rid of as the offseason proved. You've got not much coming in terms of the development system. So the future isn't looking a whole lot brighter. It This was supposed to be the year that there was change. And uh, if, if you're not seeing it now, I, I don't know how much better it's going to get. Well, Gemma, hopefully we're at least having a slightly different conversation next week. <laughs> Things have changed maybe somewhat oh, man, around so. the team. We will see, though. It remains to be seen. It'll depend on what they do on the ice. Always appreciate the time, Gemma. Thanks. Guys, thanks so much. Have a great day. That is Gemma Carson-Smith, who covers the team for the Canadian press. Bringing the fire, as always. I love that she said off the top that she's she's written the you know emergency canned copy. If there's a coaching change made, oh, you can man. just hit publish. With a few minor edits for the Canadian press. Uh, just, it's just the win-now team that doesn't win now is such a tough spot to be in in this league. Like, this is a league where you can't build concurrently for the future and the and the, and the present. You know, like, it, it's the one league where you have a hard cap, right, and fully guaranteed contracts. So you kind of do have to make decisions, win now or later, right? Like, you really do have to... I think if you find yourself straddling the two poles, you end up in trouble. And, and I'll give you an example. The Canucks made four or five first-round picks during that Gillis era. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't have made those. Like, it's not the players that they drafted. You can talk about Gons and Schrader and whatever you want, all you want. The problem is that they made the picks in the first place. Contrast that with the Penguins, the Rutherford Penguins, that traded every first-round pick. Like, I, I'll tell you which uh, which <laughs> which team's legacy you'd rather have, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's so hard to do both at once. And so this is a team that's been oriented on the short term for years, like summer after summer and hasn't made the playoffs in three years. I mean, it's, it's really hard. Like it's really hard to wrap your head around because the system's almost not designed for this level of ineptitude. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're talking about... Like, truly, the system's not designed to miss the playoffs six of seven years. Yeah. Right? Like, it legitimately is designed to reward those teams so that they get better. It's certainly not designed (laughs) for... Because if you also think about it, they have, not on all of them, 
but they have hit on picks in a big way. In a big and, way. And they have tried to get better, right? Yeah. Like, you, if you do those two things, you're not going to be a contender, but you should at least be a perennial playoff contender, right? Playoff team. You know what I mean? Over like, time, you'd think. that You would think. It has not happened. Not yet, anyways. Well, and again, still time to still salvage, very early but, in this but the warning signs the warning signs that were there have just come to bear in the worst possible way. Plus, I think we're seeing what this team looks like when their goalie's not uh, stealing them games. Yeah. You know, I, it's hard to wrap your head around how much of an impact stuff like cluster luck and random variants can have in, in hockey, but I mean... The difference between being number one in the NHL by five on five save percentage and not by a little bit, and what that makes your team look like for 50, 60 games when when the wins at your back, versus now where like the team hasn't even been that unlucky, the team hasn't even been that unlucky, and the goaltending has, as M, as Gemma quite rightly said, not been like the problem in in any respect. Like completely unfair to say, you know, five on five, like there are a ton of teams. The Canucks have a better 5-on-5 save percentage than 11 other teams. So while the goaltending is part of the story, it's more that it's just not been the best than it's been, like, awful, right? This this is not the New Jersey Devils start for the Canucks. It's just that when the goaltender isn't specifically hiding all the flaws, you see them, and you don't like what it looks like. Uh, Gemma was talking about the relationship between Bruce Boudreaux and management, how that's going to be under the microscope, under the spotlight now even more. Elliot Friedman, doing his daily hit with Jeff Merrick on the Jeff Merrick Show earlier today, was talking about that as well. And I think it's a useful perspective. Uh, here is what uh, what Elliot Friedman had to say about Bruce Boudreaux and his situation with the Canucks. Like, if you make a coaching change right now, it's a total failure. It is a total failure on everybody's behalf. By all, if you're if you're making a change, and there have been some early times, Peter Laviolette in Philadelphia, Joel Quenville will play Sammy Savard in Chicago very quickly. Like, like you might as well have done it in the off season if you're making the change now. But um, you know, uh, like, so it's a failure if you're doing that at this point in time. However, however, I think you're kind of in a situation right now where you're worried this season's going to get away from you. And you also know that the relationship between Boudreaux and management was a bit tenuous. So I just think you have to be aware of the possibility. That's all. I think it's, like I said, I think it's, it's I think if you're, if you're firing a coach now, it's, it's a massive failure on anyone involved and everyone involved. But I think because of the dynamic, you have to be aware of it. That's Elliot Friedman earlier today on Jeff Merrick. Woof. Do, do you, <laughs> oh my goodness! Do you take issue? Well, no, I don't. The commentary there? I don't. But here's my here's my bigger issue, right? Because the will they or won't they coaching future speculation is one thing. You you sign up for that every time you're on a losing streak when you bring a lame duck coach into a season. I think where I find it really annoying, like, the thing that makes me mad, mad, genuinely upset, is that that we're here again, like. Think about today, okay? So the Canucks are playing potentially, based on what Elliot Friedman is saying, mm-hmm. you know, with Boudreaux's job on the line, right? Playing a second leg of a back-to-back. 
what are Boudreaux's incentives today? Are they to play Jack Rathbone and see what he has? Are they to promote Niels Hoaglander up the lineup because Niels Hoaglander's been going and he can maybe get, bring some energy into the top six? Is it to play Demko, ride Demko in the second game of a back-to-back? Or is it, you know, like, the incentives are all messed up again, right? Like, I, we've talked about this so much last year, right? The, the 101. Can you set up your organization very simply? To align the interests of the organization long-term with the interests of your middle management, which is effectively your coach and your GM. And and once again, we're already at the point where I wonder, is Boudreaux going to be tempted to play Demko today because he needs the win? Or look at the sort of wider angle lens of making sure that you know the, the this team's franchise player is rolled out the right way. I think Martin will start. I don't think Boudreaux will succumb to that. Um, intention. I think that would be a, a white flag, basically, on on this team being functional at all this season. I don't expect it to occur, but you know that it has to be something you think about already. If you're in Boudreaux's shoes in the last year of his deal, I just don't understand how this organization has changed everything about itself, right? New training staff. Like, everyone but the equipment managers are new. Management is new. The head coach is new. He rebuilt his assistant, uh, his assistant coaches. Like his staff is different. Um, you made a coaching change or a change to his staff a week before the season. Um, everything is new, and the same dynamic is at play already. Just three games into the season, like that to me is you know forget losing leads or giving up for a four point game to Alex Ovechkin or having Connor McDavid score a hat trick on you or getting outworked by a John Tortorella team early in the season. Like those are hockey things. You know, we use the term unacceptable. Players use the term unacceptable because what else are you going to say, mm-hmm. right? But what's really unacceptable is the failure to just run things professionally from a from a very basic business perspective. And and I just feel like Boudreaux's now in a not win a can't win position, and all of his decisions are going to be filtered through this lens already. And it's like we we've done this two years in a row. This is the third year in a row we're going to be having these exact same conversations that speak to the like basic health of how an organization functions. That to me is what's truly like beyond the pale. And uh, Anthony and White Rock Texan, uh, Elliot needs to stop. Guys, come on, they aren't going to change the coach. And I don't think a coaching change is imminent. Again, we're three games into the season. All right, so yeah, I get that. Having said that, he doesn't have a contract beyond this year. They very pointedly declined to give him a contract extension. They very pointedly made some criticisms of how the team played and directly related them to the coach. And again, I've made this point before. We've never had resolution. We've never had anyone on either side come out and say, oh yeah, we smoothed that all over. Well, We're and, in agreement now on the structure thing. And, That's never happened. Well, it's not just structure too. There was commentary about practice habits, right? Zone exits. I mean, very specific pointed criticism. I, I mean... The idea that this isn't something to talk about or be aware of, and that's all Elliot is yeah. saying, is is it's it's a dynamic to monitor, and of course it is, of course it is, of and, course. and d- it might not be in the next like two weeks or anything to answer, but if they are in a they, if they have the similar record as they did last year, and you have a, a lame duck coach, I mean, what's the point in delaying making the move at that point, right? So not to mention, what's your reaction going to be on opening night? You know, if you don't win tonight, you know, if you come home one and four. If you lose the next two, right? Or even if you win tonight but lose in Minnesota, right? What's the reaction going to be on opening night? Because we know that the whims of the crowd, the mood in the arena, can guide organizational decision-making. So, of course, this has to be 
on your radar. And and the worst part about it for me is just that it's going to Im- infect how we perceive the decisions that Boudreau makes. He doesn't have a ton of buttons to push, right? There's not like there's a ton of good options that will easily solve things for him. But now every decision he makes is going to be under the microscope of self-preservation, which is a completely unfair spot to be him and uh, a completely unfair spot for him to be in and a spot that every Canucks head coach for the last three years has been under pretty quickly after the year begun. It's, you know. And as you point out the crowd dynamics, you know, we were kind of joking not really joking, but a little bit joking about all of the, uh, you know, the different steps and the ritual of the Canucks in crisis. And we didn't get to it, but farther down that road, the kind of the last stop in that process is, you know, bad crowd reaction. Jersey on the ice. Jersey on the ice. That's what we saw. That was the climax of the situation last year. I'm not saying we're going to get there. I'm not saying we're close to there, but we have started for three games. We're distressingly far down that road. Let's put it that way. Right. And it's at least on, it at least has to be on your radar as something that could crop up. And the stakes are now high for this team to make sure that their reception on opening night is the way you want it to be. With the wind at their backs and the fans in support and chanting, Bruce, there it is, and giving you that fortress-type home home ice advantage. Um, yeah, it's not where anyone wants to be. It's it's bad. Jamie, it's bad. It's very bad. Uh, this text <laughs> comes in. Did we hear Elliot differently? He was saying that it would be a complete failure if they did fire him. My impression was that meant he doesn't think it would be likely. But I think what he was also saying was it's an extreme move that kind of admits that there was a failure. But there are other there's other contextual uh, factors here that make an extreme move like that at least possible in a way that you normally wouldn't expect from an NHL team. At least that was my read on the situation. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Tons and tons of commentary coming in uh, to that text message inbox. We'll read some of that. Plus, look ahead to the Columbus game tonight. Yeah, there's another game, another chance for the Canucks to get that first win tonight. So we'll talk about that. Uh, I want to chat a little bit about the uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov suspension as well. He was suspended for one game after the high stick to Kyle Burrows in yesterday's game. So we'll talk about all that. Plus, read your text. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet, 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Trance. Of course, of course, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. The 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line is blowing up, Drance. Tons of comments and venting, filling it up. Uh, you know, and we'll read more of that as we continue to look ahead to tonight's game against Columbus, digest where things stand with the Canucks right now. But I know you wanted to talk just a little bit about uh, the Evgeny Kuznetsov suspension. Of course, we all saw the, the baseball swing stick to the face of Kyle Burrows in yesterday's game. Somehow just a two-minute minor. No yeah. further discipline in game. The minor, the minor is the biggest problem for me. The, the suspension length I see is being roundly criticized by Canucks fans, and it is a super dangerous play. Um, you know, I, I do think it's pretty clear that he didn't mean to hit him high. You know, I, I yep that that to me, and the league bought that line. The league bought that it was incidentally high. Um, I, I could have seen 
two games for sure, but not sure. more, not more than that. Right? Uh, it was going to for me. It was always going to be one or two. He wasn't. Burroughs continued to play. He spoke after the optional today, so it doesn't appear that he was injured. That that's always going to be taken heavily into account. The league had to do something though. So first of all. I think Kuzmenko should have been thrown out of the game without question, considering the velocity on that swing that ended up striking Burroughs high. From a uh, penalization perspective, uh, he has to be responsible for his stick. If you're calling high sticking, that's egregious enough to warrant a a major, in my view. That's a a missed call and obviously a costly one for the Canucks. Kuznetsov was key in powering the comeback in the third period. Um, But the league had to step in and do something, and, and, and here's why. It's actually... Uh, a bit of Canucks history, too. You'll recall McSorley on Brashear, 2002. Of course, I believe 2002, so. but it was 03 when he was found guilty in uh, BC courts for um, whatever it is, assault with a weapon, basically. So sports and hockey is a contact sport, of course. You consent to harm to some extent. You can you take on the risks associated with playing a dangerous game with knives on your feet and a weapon in your hand. Um, when you step on the ice for NHL competition. However, because McSorley was charged in that instance, there is an an irrelevant NHL market, some established law that one thing you don't consent to is being attacked above the shoulders by a stick by a teammate, willfully by a, by, sorry, by an opponent, willfully. Um, the NHL, because all all judges, and you know this better than most, having uh, gone to law school. Um, I thought you were going to say my lengthy uh, <laughs> law career. <laughs> Might know my lengthy record of appearing in front of judges <laughs> yeah, no. as a defendant. <laughs> um, typically speaking, most judges would prefer to leave this type of disciplinary matters to a private organization that runs a, a, you know, a sporting league like the NHL. But the NHL does have to show that they take these matters seriously, whether it was intentional or not. In this instance, uh, they had to come down. They had to suspend him. Uh, There's a variety of liability reasons associated with this particular brand of uh, dangerous contact within the NHL game. League had to suspend him. One or two games, your mileage may vary. Considering Burroughs wasn't seriously hurt, and thank goodness, because it was a very dangerous play, um, you know, not, not a shock that the league came down lightly on Kuznetsov, but something had to happen. One game it is. Uh, and I did, uh, I just noticed this as you were talking. Uh, agent Alan Walsh, never shy about sharing his opinion, uh, just tweeted out a few minutes ago, Gary's NHL, a baseball bat swing of a stick into an opposing player's face is worthy, worthy of the same supplemental discipline, a one-game suspension as a player who declines an invitation to play in an All-Star game. So there is Alan Walsh, again, never shy about sharing his opinion. Uh, uh, that is in on this one. That is a good take. That is a good take one. by Alan Walsh. Certainly not a bad one. Yep. It, like, when I say I expected a one or two game suspension, that's in the context of the history of the NHL and how they handle these things. Totally. If you were like explaining that to an alien arriving here and like, oh, what did this guy do? Oh, he swung this stick into the player's face. What's the penalty? One game. It's like, wait, pardon me? <laughs> Excuse <laughs> huh? me? What? Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I mean, it. you're right. When you re- when you remove yourself from the context of low expectations, it makes zero sense. Yep. But considering what we know of DOPS, uh, I'm, I wasn't shocked to see one game, but you knew something had to come of it uh, because of some of the precedents involved. Uh, all right, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Tux line. Again, it is Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650, and we will look ahead a little bit now tonight. 4 p.m. puck drop again at 3.30. The pregame show will be going live on TV on Sportsnet Pacific. I saw Riccio in the building during the last break. He's looking dapper, obviously sat. We all know he knows how to turn out for TV. So uh, the guys will be looking sharp, and they will be on. Do we not know that about Reach? You needed to be reassured? 
<laughs> well, I mean, Sat's at a different tier. Sure. Sat, Sat leads the, leads us radio slobs in oh, being able to be presentable. 100%. Yeah, no anyways. question. So I have no I have no questions about uh, Sat. Anyways, um, both teams are 0-3. And as I said earlier in the show, right, Canucks fans can look at this and say, okay, you know, chance to get a win. I guarantee you Blue Jackets fans, people who do whatever the equivalent of the show is in Columbus that we're doing are saying, hey, tired team has blown a bunch of leads, players only meeting, mentally weak. This is the chance for the Johnny Gaudreau Blue Jackets to get in the win column. I will say both teams 0-3, unlike the Canucks, the Blue Jackets have been brutal, brutal at even strength so far, Drancer. Terrible defensively. Like that's really been... The separator is the Canucks have been at least average defensively. I mean, your mileage may vary. There's some metrics that like them more than that, but sort of the the overall thrust, I'd say they've been about average defensively. Um, but the Blue Jackets have probably been league worst. I mean, we're talking about them surrendering, you know, well over a shot attempt per minute. Um, I mean, they are surrendering a lot. Teams are generating a lot against the Columbus Blue Jackets, and that should, one would expect or hope, fuel... Vancouver's strengths, right? I mean, Vancouver is a dangerous offensive team, at the very least. No matter what else you've thought of their performance, they've scored goals yeah, and in the early going. I would, I haven't liked a lot of their five-on-five -five chance generation outside of the Elias, when Elias Pettersson has sure. been on the ice. But that's one of the things I would expect to turn around. Yeah. Right? And this seems like a, a golden opportunity to turn it around. Golden opportunity. They've really struggled to limit opposition chances. The Canucks are going to need... To make that count, you know, they need to play a cleaner game, especially if it's Martin and net, not because you can't trust Martin to do what Demko can do. I mean, we saw Martin win this team games that they didn't play that well in last year, but you know, you'd like to get him off to a good start, right? It's really vital for this team's long-term prospects over the course of 82 that Martin puts in a dependable shift today, right? Uh, you you really don't want to find yourself where the Canucks were in February of March last year where they lost mm -hmm. all faith in, in Yaroslav Halak to finish a game. Um, so, you know, pretty high stakes, I think, for the Canucks defense to, to not not just for Martin, but man, just to just to play a good game and win. Um, feels vital. Feels Today feels like a big, way bigger than a fourth game of the year should feel. It, a fourth game of the year against winless Columbus, right? Should not feel like, oh, man. Yeah. Oh, the late, the, man, we need this one. The late October contest against Columbus, a watchword for game you don't care about that much, is yeah. now life and death. Yeah. Second half of a back-to-back, -back, right? So you can even, if you're looking at it when the schedule comes out, you can even kind of mentally excuse, oh, they might drop that one, but that's fine. It's like, well, all of a sudden it is not fine. very much not fine. No, if they uh, if we're the doing this show again tomorrow and they've lost to Columbus, the discussion is going to be <sighs> histrionic. Yes, more so than... <laughs> Wow. I, I like to think we've tried to be as we've fair been, as we, we can. We have. Um, We're always tactful. No? Uh, I, I think we try to be. I think, I think even when, be I am, fair. when I make bold statements about the team, I think I try to make sure there's enough. You know, I've thrown the caveats of fairness and there's enough there to back it up. I don't think I'm a, a hot take artist. You know, there's a couple people have texted in, right? Like, hey, guys, calm down. It's only 10 games. Again, my response. Ten games. Oh, sorry. Wait. Give it at least ten. If games. they were winless over ten, <laughs> then then, then I'd you'll be... see some fun discussions. I I just I just think there's an aura of politeness that that always hangs over discussions about this team in this market. Always, always, yeah. and I even think that I indulge in it. Sometimes I regret it, <laughs> but I think that's been the case. 
Yeah, you mentioned the um, the weakness uh, defensively of Columbus up and down the lineup. Really want to see JT Miller do some damage at five on five, right? Like, there's no there's no stopper. Just just out play there. in the offensive end. Yeah, I I don't even care about the bottom line production. I just want to see JT Miller spend shifts generating the offensive end. We just I thought we saw a little bit of that in the first forty minutes last night, but just not enough. I think the line change definitely helped. For sure, or at least if it wasn't that, whatever, it looked like it was that because it happened on the night where they switched it up. But you need to see more, especially in a game uh, like this against Columbus. Just some of the other questions, obviously, who gets the start in net? Would expect it to be Spencer Martin, but we'll see Ilya Mikheyev potentially making his Canucks debut. I know Darren Drager reported that yesterday. If there were no setbacks, he was scheduled to play today. We'll see again when they get on the ice for warmups. Uh, if he's there, if presumably with Patterson. Forward, yeah, presumably with K- Patterson. Kuzmenko. Uh, and then Jack Rathbone, a potential to get in as well, right? We kind of heard that from Bruce Boudreau. I don't know if the result and the poor defensive effort changes it. If it doesn't, I, I have no idea really I mean, what to make of that situation see, right you now. You have to see if he can help give you some back-end push, particularly with how little the Canucks have been able to generate five-on-five. Five. You know, what's the what's the upside case that any Canucks player in the entire organization could have re-entering the lineup. I mean, if you really want to squint and make the case that Tyler Myers will stabilize their defensive play or or their penalty kill, um, Mikheyev is going to have this great impact on the penalty kill. Like, I'm a little skeptical um, that it's going to, you know, he's going to help. Don't get me wrong. He's a good player, but... It, you know, I, I, it's like when everyone was hoping that Tyler Mott would fix the Canucks PK last year. It's like you're just asking a little bit too much of a really good penalty killing piece. Um, they'll help, but they're not, you know, going to solve everything. Jack Rathbone, at least, you know, in your mind's eye, can help this team move the puck, which they're so desperately in need of on the back end. He can help this team do some dynamic things that support the offensive attack from the back end, which this team is so desperately in need of. You need to see what he can give you. Like, very much along the same lines as it's vital that Thatcher Demko does not start tonight. Like, absolutely vital. Mm. If you're that desperate this early in the season, you know, that's, for me, um, like, that's a terminal failing for the organization. Similarly, if Jack Rathbone can't get in tonight, man, I think well, that's no, I think that's an indictment. There's no excuse, right? Like, okay, Washington, big strong team. You want the physicality of Noah Juleson. Yeah, it's a bad sure. excuse, but we'll whatever. At least but it's something. It's you can't say that about Columbus, right? Yeah, they have Johnny Gaudreau, but they're missing Patrick Line. Outside of Johnny Gaudreau, they're not particularly threatening offensively. Uh Noah Juleson. Played all right, but also made some glaring mistakes in exactly the way that, you know, you figure Jack Rathbone's strengths would uh, would allow him to do better, right? So there's no reason, just looking from the outside, that you wouldn't put him in here. And again, we talked about it a little yesterday, but at a certain point, you start having to ask, like, what is the future here for Jack Rathbone? And I would expect we see him tonight, again, coming off another loss. If we don't, that conversation is just going to get uh, louder and louder. Uh, did want to look quickly at the uh, the odds on playnow.com for this game. Basically a pick Columbus minus 105, Canucks in extraordinarily slight favorites at minus 115. So essentially no juice in either direction uh, on this one. I did like this, though. So if you want to kind of, if you want to predict that things are going to keep going the way they have for the Canucks on play now, you can get the Canucks plus 165 to win the first period 
uh, and Columbus plus 160 to win the third. So if you want to predict Canucks take a lead and then blow it in the third period, as they have done in all three games so far, uh, you can get a little bit of juice from that one. Uh, a couple of other anytime goal ones that are interesting to me. Pod Colson is plus 350. I think he's been one of the team's better forwards outside of Elias Patterson so far. Now, you don't necessarily love taking a guy who doesn't get big power play minutes for the anytime goal, but if he's still playing with JT Miller and Connor Garland against an, uh, a team that really struggles to defend, I don't mind Vasily Podkolzin plus 350. I said Kuzmenko plus 300 last night, still interested in that. The other one I'll highlight on the Columbus side, Kent Johnson, Port Moody product, looking for his first NHL goal is plus 350. That feels inevitable. So if you want the, oh, of course, of course he did it against the Canucks. If you want to ride that, plus 350 I mean, at playout.com. Yeah, the, the, the Wizard of Port Moody is uh, a good bet for sure. Um, minus 110 for the Canucks to win tonight. Minus 110 for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Yeah. A pick them on the money line Yeah, against uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Minus 105, minus 115 when I saw it, but I would basically. Yeah, yeah. it's moved. Yeah. It's moved. Um, at least Vegas moved to minus 110, 110. Yeah. So exactly um, even, dead even. A, a pure pick'em on the money line against the Columbus Blue Jackets. So if you think we're overreacting, I know it's a second leg of a back-to-back, mm-hmm. which is vital context, but, I mean, <laughs> Vegas is very quickly souring on this team, right? They were favored against the Philadelphia Flyers on the road just a little while ago. I mean, four days ago. And uh, Vegas is not impressed. Vegas is clearly not impressed by what they've seen from Vancouver so far. Nope. Absolutely not. How could they be? There's not a lot to be impressed by. You like what you've seen from Elias Patterson? Outside of that, now if you're one of those, going on. if you're one of those, it's just three games, people. Though, that's good value for the Canucks against a team most expect to be in the bottom ten, right? Yeah. And who has been legitimately like doesn't have the bright side of oh hey they've been all right at five on five actually that the Canucks have. You know what I mean? Like Columbus yeah, totally. can't lean on that. No. They've been full value for 0-3 and looked really, really poor doing it. Now, Vancouver's 5-on-5 five five profile looks pretty good, but it's only three games, right? Yeah. I mean, you're you're basically one really bad period from those 5-on-5 five five numbers looking bad. Also, five uh, one really good period from those 5-on-5 five five numbers looking downright elite. So, you know, we're at the point in the season where you can't take a ton of st- – or t- can't put a ton of stock in a sample that's, like, still not 100 minutes big yet, but – I do think Vancouver's five on five, like outplaying teams at five on five, things a bit soft. You know, I don't think they outplayed the Caps five oh, on five. Yeah, no. I don't goodness. care what the shot clock looks like. I thought the first period, for example, where play looked even, you could tell that the Capitals were carrying play. I, I really thought it was, and actually, this this sort of goes back to a negative. There was seven minutes in that second period, right after the Canucks scored two goals in quick succession, where they looked great mm-hmm. looked a little bit like they did against the Oilers in the first period right uh on in the home op- or the season opener this Canucks team clearly can get buzzing a little bit and when they do get to that point they look excellent I think this is sort of what Boudreaux was trying to get at too when he described them as mentally weak or afraid to win it's like why can you respond to positive moments by getting on your horse and, you know, digging that knife in further and and pressing your advantage. But we never see the team respond to adversity in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's other teams where you score against them and they come roaring back. We saw the Oilers do that a ton against Vancouver. Um, This team, it feels like needs positive reinforcement to succeed. It's like they've got the runners. 
Yeah, but the front runners that don't run from in front. A slow front runner is not a thing. You know, like you can't be a front runner that starts slow every year. The other thing that strikes me is it's not okay, so the third period, they're up two, they give up a goal, and it falls apart. It's not even as if we've lost the lead and now we fall apart. You're still winning. You still have the lead. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that yes, it's you okay, things have started to go against you, but it's not as if the game is out of reach. Oh man, it was a tie game and now we're down, we're screwed. You're still winning. Just play your game and you still have a really, really good chance to win that game. That's the thing that blew my mind. And even, you know, you talk about uh going back to the game against Edmonton and the missed call against Quinn Hughes. Well, okay, it's three one. Like, yeah, that's a bad break. That's tough. You don't like that. It's three one. You have a two goal lead in this game. Just settle yourself down. It seems to, for whatever reason, to be a very, very hard thing for this team to do. And, you know, just to your Things point about... Things just snowball both ways. Yeah. To your point about the five-on-five five numbers looking good, but maybe they're not full value for that. I mean, I you said in, uh, for the Philly game that you thought they had a really strong second half of the game. But I kind of think, you know, it was the numbers look good, but the performance didn't necessarily match that. I, I liked it. I just thought their execution was sloppy. There was, like, a lot of uh, missed shots and stuff, but they were yeah. generating stuff, which sort of goes back to the first period. Of, of last night for me too where it felt like the caps were a half inch away from generating chances at will and it's just like sticks uh, pucks were bouncing over their sticks or like they just weren't quite getting there but it, they were off by a millisecond and you know anyway i i just i don't think they were full value i still think they were good against philadelphia especially in that third quarter uh third period i'm still shocked that the Canucks didn't blow the wheels off of Philadelphia in that third period. I thought that was exactly where that game was trending while watching it until that, you know, weird bounce over Miller's stick ends up in the back of the Canucks net because it's been that type of week for <laughs> Vancouver to start the season. We're, we're still not a week into the season. Oh, I know. It's incredible. It feels we're, like it's been three years. We're wrapping up the first week of the season here today, tonight. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a lot has happened. Hasn't gone well. <laughs> no. But look, you, you know what? You do have a chance to salvage this road trip. And the Canucks have done this under Boudreaux before, right? You have a chance to change the conversation in a significant way tonight and on Thursday in Minnesota. And this market is, like, very open to it. Even the media. You know, like, even even the most critical voices around this team don't think that this team is this bad. Mm -hmm. You know, like, none of us think this team is this bad. You know, we all expect that even... The most negative voice in our market is like, yeah, they're a playoff bubble team, right? Like the idea of this being a unfair market in terms of the media pressure on like the thing that we're struggling to do is explain why they've performed this badly because it doesn't make sense. We don't think they're this bad. They do have a chance against a lowly Columbus team and a wild team that has not found their footing in the early going, particularly defensively and particularly in goal. To at least come home two and three. And if they do that, everyone's going to be amped up. Like, get back to 500 against the Sabres. And, you know, everyone will... Like, the story is so easy to reverse and have it be after early season stumble, club gets back on track. Right? It's very easy for this team to do it. You do have to win tonight. Tonight's one of those where, like, a bad luck loss is still not going to help you. No. But, but uh, you know, if you play well against Minnesota and lose narrowly... And win tonight, I think people will be able to be like, okay. I think it would have to be a, you have to play really well in Minnesota if you lose that game. Sure. If you come back one and four. Oh, man, you're right. You're right. You need it, to win the next two. Yeah. So really, it's not, it's not really easy to flip the script, but it's 
very it's much possible. it's very much there for them. It's very doable. Um, it's just these players have told a story about how they can beat anyone when they're on, when they're invested, when they're bought in. Like it's time. It's just time to show us. You know, we've talked about it a lot. It's time to show us. It's time to show the league. It's time to show management. It's time to show Bruce. Like it's time to get there. It's time to get there and show up and play sixty minutes. Yeah. Just play. Don't. I, what I really want to see from the Canucks tonight, I just don't want to see one of those egg periods. We've seen one every game, and it's crushed them. I just want to see them play at least fine for 60 minutes. I don't want to see a 20-minute stretch where I'm like, oh, boy, this is brutal. And we've seen it in every game they've played so far. Yeah, they are 0 for 3 in backing up all of the talk we heard in training camp so far, right? Of We know how important the start to the season is, right? We know we have to change the culture. We know what our habits have to be. They're over 3 on backing that up. Hey, it's only three games. You still have, as you said, two opportunities on this road trip to start backing that up, to start erasing the memories of the disastrous first three games for this team. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We will dive in to your thoughts and comments ahead of tonight's game against Columbus on the other side. Reminder, 3 p.m. pregame show starts with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah here on 650. And at 3.30, it will be on Sportsnet Pacific on your TV. So make sure you tune into that. More Canucks Talk final segment coming up here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Final segment of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 for the day. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Strantz, a few hours away, two and a half hours away from Puck Trough in Columbus. It's the Canucks. It's the Blue Jackets. Fourth game of the five-game opening of the season road trip for the Canucks. Of course, as we all know, still looking uh, for that first win and those four, four first points of the season. Pre-game starts at 3 with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. They're coming up on Canucks Central right after our show. Uh, Batch and Randeep will have the call. Sat and Bick, your post-game coverage. And of course, as I've mentioned, it's a very exciting day here because uh, the pregame show for half an hour is going on TV on Sportsnet Pacific. You'll be able to see live local pregame coverage of your Vancouver Canucks, which is very, very exciting. 650-650 again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, lots of we, we played the clip from Elliot Friedman earlier in the show, Drancer, where he was saying... Just want to step in here quickly. Okay. Uh, Patrick Alvin announced just now that um, Noah Juleson has been reassigned to the Abbotsford uh, Canucks and Tyler Myers and Ilya Mikheyev activated from injured reserve, presumably slated to play tonight, make their season debut... Look, Myers is going to help, but the idea that he moves the needle for this team, I, I mean, is repudiated by years of what we've seen. Um, unfortunately, this team's level of play on the right side is so low that he does improve them, for That's, sure. Yeah, it's the thing. I'm, I'm a little bit torn, and we had somebody text in. I can't find it right now, but somebody text in. Do you think like fans are starting to realize uh, that they miss Myers on this team? And you're right to say that on an NHL-wide level, he doesn't move the needle. But how much have we talking have been talking about an inability or an unwillingness or both from the Canucks defense to be involved offensively whatsoever? Yeah, they, to skate the puck through the neutral Myers zone. Myers can do that. Myers he does can do that. Myers does help you address that to some extent. You know, we had a text earlier, right? And I, I was talking about Luke Shen and the and the shift in the third period where it's, you know, soft dump into the corner and somebody else pointed out, you know, there was at least one play where Quinn Hughes gets the puck in the neutral zone to Luke Shen, wide open on the right side. No pressure whatsoever. 
hits the red line and it's a dump in. And again, maybe that's the right play for Luke Shen, but if you have that many guys in your lineup for whom that's the right play, that's a problem for your team. And Tyler Myers, look, maybe it won't always be the correct decision. Maybe the result won't be pretty, but he's going to skate that puck in and he's going to gain the neutral, uh, the blue line with control. Yeah, I mean, he got injured two weeks ago in Abbotsford, less than two weeks ago, right? Thursday of last, not or sorry, last when not last Wednesday, but the Wednesday mm-hmm. previous. The Canucks said on Friday of last week, right? No, Friday of the week before. They said two to four weeks. So we are very much in the aggressive side of two to four weeks for Tyler Myers. So, look, we'll see what the rest of the lineup looks like. Presumably, we're. I mean, I didn't think Riley Stillman had as good a game against Washington as he did against Philadelphia, but he's been mostly a positive contributor, I think, through his first three games. If Myers is back, does that de- delay when we see Jack Rathbone? And if not now, when? I would think it does delay. Okay. Right? So we'll see. There's still something to see when the Canucks hit the ice for uh, warm-ups, which will be right when the brand-new Canucks pregame show featuring uh-huh. Satyar uh-huh. Shah and Dan Riccio debuts on Sportsnet Pacific, 3.30. Um, we'll see if Jack Rathbone is slated to make his debut this season. Myers seems slated to return, clearly rushed out um, <laughs> to uh, to be there tonight. He'll help for sure. But you hope that he's ready, right? You hope that this isn't too aggressive. You hope that this isn't a desperation play or the sort of play that they wouldn't have made, considering they, how long if they were two and one. Is. Would they have flown him out to join the team and get it? Or, the or tonight, would he right? have played against yeah. Minnesota as opposed yeah. to tonight? You know, I mean, I think they were eyeing, and they told Ian McIntyre this over the weekend, right? They were eyeing Minnesota, so this is a little bit ahead of schedule, and and you just hope, considering Myers' age. He's been very durable in his Canucks career, but wasn't prior to joining the organization. I know that he's a guy who, you know, as a mature vet, takes very careful care of his body, right? Like, he's very careful about making sure that he's available as often as possible. You just hope that that's, you hope that he's not being rushed. You hope that Mm -hmm. he's not rushing himself out of a sense of obligation to help this team either, because you're going to need him for all of the games, not just game four, which... You know, granted, as we've been talking about, feels pretty big. Mikheyev's going to add some speed to this lineup. They need it. They looked slow against the Capitals, and the Capitals aren't fast, so that's a bad sign. Um, Mikheyev's also going to help on the PK. Yeah. That's that's sort of the area where, you get, you know, one guy getting back probably doesn't move the needle. Both guys getting back probably doesn't move the needle, but, but it has a chance to really help them kill penalties. And They're you know, both key. You know what needs to happen, and look, I don't know if he'll be there in his first game back, first game with the team, but... JT Miller cannot be first over the boards for the penalty kill right now. I don't think so. I, I just I don't, like. But but what do you do? I mean, hopefully you go Lazar Mikheyev. But Lazar's, as soon as you're as, Lazar's zero for six in the circle. Yeah, that's like the definition of a small sample, though, right? It, for sure. But it's it's not. It hasn't been good. The thing don't get me the wrong. Thing about, the thing about faceoffs is they don't matter in a macro sense, but they matter enormously in the micro. Mm-hmm. So zero for six when you're getting scored on the first 15 seconds of every PK shift is a huge deal. It's not good. I mean, I don't but I think know. it's got like, that's what you signed those guys to likely be your first choice forwards on the penalty kill. Right. And yeah. it's, it's not working for Miller. We talked about it going into the season. They have to find a way to reduce his load. I don't know if this is working for either. No, it's not. So, I mean, maybe it's Horvat, you know, Horvat Mikhaev. I mean, you got to figure something out. You, you, there's no harm in trying everything. But I'm just saying, uh, dropping Miller 
in our mind's eye makes sense. Harmon Dial made a really strong case for it based on Miller's historic PK results over at the Athletic uh, last night. You can read his reaction to the players-only meeting and the early season crisis mm-hmm. that the Canucks are enduring. But you know, you can roll through guys at the end of the day. Uh, there's no, like you can't get worse, right? So no, there's the no harm in trying right whatever. But I, I just don't know that I'd single out Miller ahead of Lazar if I'm looking to bump one guy. Well, off. no, but the thing is, it's not just about the results on the penalty kill. It's, it's also, also about the, the, the minutes, the yeah, right. So enough. I think you have to, you have to right now probably be at least thinking with ways you can tinker with Miller's role in general, right? And I know we've had fans text in today. Are they going to move him to the wing? Should they move him to the wing? You know, one of our listeners DM'd me on Twitter that after the game last night, right? Like, when when do we start to have that conversation? Well, I don't I've, think we're there. I've been having that conversation yeah, for a long time. I don't think the team is there. <laughs> no, but I, I don't mean, either. The results so far and the play so far have been, okay, you kind of have to think, where can we scale back? Where can we change what we're asking him to do? And you you combine that with the results on the penalty kill, and I think it's that's the first thing to go. Right? Yeah, you got to get so somebody too. else there. I think so, too. Realistically. Um. I wanted to read this text that came in. And by the way, uh, it was Jared and Langley who made the text about uh, Tyler Myers. Uh, I want to give credit for that one. Um, This text came in a little bit earlier. Uh, Actually, first, quickly, Steve from White Rock Rock says, uh, if Tyler Myers was on LTIR, what are the cap ramifications coming off early? He He was not. He was on just IR, so no cap relief, but they got an extra roster spot. That's why Noah Juleson is being reassigned. As uh, as Tyler Myers is activated here. and and Ilya McKay, and so they were already counting against the cap on IR, which only provides roster relief. Um, if he had been on LTI, he wouldn't be eligible to play until November. So you know that he wasn't on LTI. And earlier, uh, Hans texted in. Can you explain the significance of a players only meeting? I haven't heard of that before. Please and thanks. And oh, they're so awkward. By the way, <laughs> I can only imagine. And I guess the best way to kind of describe it is. It's become shorthand for things are going really poorly, right? Like that's the card you play to kind of indicate outwardly that you recognize that things are going poorly and you're trying really hard to fix it. But in the room, right? It's like everyone sits down, no one moves. You wait for a couple of guys who are at the top of the pecking order to sort of say something. Sometimes it's a random guy, like sometimes it'll be a more random guy who speaks up, but it's usually a veteran, right? It's never going to be like a young guy who's like, boys, right? Everyone would sort of laugh. Um, (laughs) And it's just like this incredibly awkward airing of grievances. It's basically a Festivus (laughs) in the the locker room. And it's so awkward. Like, you know, as as PR- As any airing of grievances really is. You know, as a PR guy, right? Like you're working for the team, but you're not on the team by any yeah. means and you don't have to be in there. Right. So it's like equipment guys have to be in there because you have to get out of there usually, or you, they have work to do. So they have to be in there even when a players only meeting is happening, but not always. Sometimes you have players only meetings that are so bad that the equipment guys are just like, yeah, we'll take a sec, especially if they're at home on the road. When you're traveling for a back to back, for sure. Equipment guys are still going about buzzing about, doing their work, um, bagging things up. There's bags on the ground, right right around the players, because um, you just have to get on the plane as fast as possible. You're, you're literally like on a timer 45 minutes after the game ends. you got to be on a bus, on a charter, on a plane, to a hotel, and, in, and asleep so that you're ready for the next game. And as the PR guy, you'd walk in, and you don't know, like you don't, you know, sometimes, yeah. sometimes you're lucky and the equipment guys are like meeting, you know, and you're like, okay, good, you time it out give them seven minutes or, or however long. Sometimes you wait and give them a lot longer, even though <laughs> NHL protocol requires that you open the locker room five minutes after the game ends. Sometimes you're willing to take the bullets from the media to, to give guys more time. But 
uh, oftentimes you'll walk in and guys are just like swearing or, you know, unacceptable, whatever, all, all the sort of, you know, performative anger things that teams do uh, when they're losing. And it's so awkward. You're just like, oh, oh uh, my bad. <laughs> Make zero noise. Try and get out of there unnoticed. It sounds like you're Brutal. describing like if you ever went over to a friend's house in elementary school and then like their parents get into a fight. And 100%. you're just like sitting there like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do right now. 100%. It's so bad. no idea it's how to handle so this. It's so bad. I, I mean, look, losing in the NHL is hell, right? Like it's really tough and it's not a fun place to be in a team environment. Losing on the road, like losing every game on the road is brutal. Like it's, it's really quite miserable or can be. Um, so yeah, I'd imagine that this road trip has not been fun for Canucks support staffers. I'd imagine it's not been fun for Canucks players, but effectively a players only meeting is a, um, you know, a real talk airing of grievances between uh, between teammates as you try and sort of sort things yeah. out. And uh, yeah, I mean, never a good sign when a team is spending time doing that following a game and the media knows it because they're waiting. Right. And the longer they wait, they know the more serious the conversation is. They can absolutely be productive, although, again, I, I tended to avoid being anywhere close to them. Sure, sure. Um, they definitely can be productive. Um, but you know, and it has kind of entered the lexicon of not just in hockey, but in sports fandom and sports media coverage as, you know, we talked about it, like just one of the things that a struggling team does, right. And they all kind of run together and we, we focus less on what actually happens in them than the fact that they happen. They're kind of a signpost of, oh, this team's in crisis. How do you know? Well, they just had a players only meeting. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's. The, the symbolism of the players only meeting. It is a big deal, though, because it's like it's otherwise it's quitting time. You know, like you mm. can it, it, when things are good, when things are good, you know, most teams have their belt or their like little celebration thing. Yeah. Then everyone's like, you know, let's go eat. Let's go hang out. Right. Like if you're taking time to sort of discuss things with a team, you know, it's like you're you've finished your shift, but you have to debrief because it went so badly. <laughs> Like, that's the equivalent, right? It's like, oh, man, wow, that was brutal. What do we do to fix it next time? Like, what what do we have to address before we clock out? Yeah. That's essentially, you know, if, if, if for our listeners, so, so that you can relate. That's the equivalent. It would be like if we had enormous technical issues, right. a CRTC complaint, one of us swore on air, and after the show, instead of going our separate ways and looking forward to doing the show together again tomorrow, we were like, well, we have to talk. Let's talk about what went wrong so that we can continue to work together. Like that's that's effectively what it is, um, you know, in in like more common workplace equivalent. Yeah, uh, I always look forward to doing the show. Uh, me too. Me too. Chance. We've we've never had we not had a players only meeting. Well, here players. We've never had a hosts only meeting. <laughs> not yet. There's always time. We'll see. Yeah. How, we'll see how this. We've got goes. 16 minutes left in this program <laughs> to get there, bud. Um, I did want to get back into some of the commentary and the thoughts about you know we played the clip from Elliot Friedman, uh, you know, saying it would be a massive failure. It would be indicative of massive organizational fail. Uh, failure to fire Bruce Boudreaux early in the season. But you also have to be aware of the factors that could potentially push the team uh, in that direction. Lots of commentary obviously coming in on that one. Snoop the Dog says, uh, regarding Elliott's take, the only reason behind an early Boudreaux firing could be that management wanted to replace him in the offseason but couldn't coming off the Bruce there. It is mania. Uh, this could be their chance to make the move if they wanted a new bench boss. Well, sure. And, I mean, we do know from the reporting at the time, uh, led by my colleague Pierre Lebrun of, of The Athletic, um, you know, that ownership hired Boudreaux directly and mm-hmm. then hired a president of hockey operations who hired the GM. So, I mean, 
absolutely an arranged marriage. Yeah. Right? Uh, it, just absolutely an arranged marriage. And situations like that are more prone to tension, right? Which sort of comes back again to the conversations we were having last November, because let's revisit those at, at oh, nauseum. Yeah. Those are fun. Talking about, you know, the dysfunction that was so obviously apparent as the organization, like, leaked that it was having meetings with key decision makers and then was caught, you know, very obviously seeking to replace the head coach, but still trotting him out to speak every day for weeks and weeks. I mean, you know, the fact is, is that when they turned things around and Boudreaux's immediate success hid the stench of how poorly done it was. And is it possible that that stench could reemerge now that the, the, Boudreaux bump potpourri might sort of fade from our from our um, nostrils as, as we begin to realize that, hey, you know, like this process was very much rushed haphazard and the organization prioritized winning the press conference and, you know, named Stan Smeal GM for 48 hours. And it was weird. Like it was weird. No one wanted to talk about it because the team barely lost again the rest of the year. But it was weird at the time. And our what we're discussing in terms of the tension between management and um the the head coach which Elliot Friedman alluded to at length like that is just the echo of how things played out last fall and I will say to Snoop the Dog's point about you know is there a potential that management is looking for that opportunity looking for that chance to replace the coach the thing is you, you know you might not be wrong that they felt it was kind of politically impossible right from an optics standpoint to do it in the summer you're still taking a major hit if you decide to do it you know before December 1st here, right? Like, it- well, make, make, make no mistake. The changes that were wrought last December and that had this market feeling so optimistic were not the result of management's moves or lack thereof. In fact, when the Tyler Mott trade went down, people were like, huh? Mm-hmm. The Hamannick trade was really the only move that management made that the market was like really gung-ho about. The JT Miller and, signing and was polarizing. Hold on, even in that one, even in the Hamannick trade, the trade to Ottawa was people were really, really excited about. The Dermot corresponding trade. Dermot trade, not, eh. not, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I hate this, but it was mixed. It was, oh, okay, yeah. all right. Are, you, are you better off with the pick, though? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and then, for sure, the I think the Mikheyev reaction was somewhat polarized. People liked the signing. Kuzmenko was a snow day. Everyone yep. loved that. And then the Miller signing was polarizing, for sure, in this marketplace. And so, you know, Make no mistake, like the good vibes leading into this season, the the renewed interest and excitement that you could feel, the positivity building around this team, that was the product of Boudreaux. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think Rutherford um, is such a stark contrast with the previous regime in terms of his skills as a spokesperson that, you know, there there's some, I think, faith also invested in that resume, that experience, the Stanley Cup wins. Um you know, I think people really liked what Alvin and Rutherford had to say about cap space and draft picks and looking ahead. And yet, you know, when the actions sort of contrast with that commentary, you know, I, I do think that there's a fair bit of cover that still relatively new Canucks management will lose mm-hmm. without the trust and fondness that this market has developed quite organically for 
their head coach. And Kurt from Ladner texts in along those lines. He says, firing uh, a coach with a, a, a winning regular season resume like Boudreaux before even sniffing the playoffs would be a complete failure. If that happens, I would lose all faith in this ownership and management group. Full stop. The middle of the pack stuff has got to stop. The fan base is tired of mediocrity. I think that probably sums up a lot of fans, how they feel, right? That if it comes down to you know, choosing sides between Boudreaux and management, they know which way they're leaning, right? Yeah. The thing is, though, is that this fan base and market, I think there's still a lot of tolerance for a team that gets 98 points and makes the playoffs. I think there's a lot of fans that just want to have fun watching this team again. And I think it's been so long. Like, I think the organization's read is that the market is impatient. And... I think the market is impatient for sure. I just think the market's more impatient to see something done right, <laughs> to like have something built that they can fondly enjoy for like a decade and a half of sustained success, as opposed to you know the the ninety eight to one hundred and two point um, two hundred point anything can happen construction. But you know, I do think there's a lot of fans that just want this team to be fun to watch. Mm -hmm. They just want this team to be fun to watch, and so you know. There's a lot of people that are done with mediocrity. There's a lot of people that would take mediocrity. What what has people fired up right now is that they're not even jumping yeah. over that bar. Especially if it felt like but it's just one week. mediocrity on track to something more than mediocrity, right? But you're right. Just at this point, a lot of people would say, man, hey, we made but the But there playoffs. was excitement about Great. this team. And this team was, you know, likely to be middling with the with the, with a no clear path forward. But that was enough that people were excited. Yeah. No? Like, that was enough that people wanted to kick the football Lucy was holding. Well, but I think people convinced themselves to a greater or lesser degree that it could be, with new management in place, part of an upward trajectory, right? Okay. And I think that is going to go by the wayside in a hurry, like, as we're seeing, right, from the text message inbox, if the losing continues, and if there's kind of a quick trigger on Boudreaux, right? That confidence that allows you to kind of dream on the future is going to go by the wayside. And just quickly... I think, I yeah, I, I wonder if that hope was really built in toward the idea that the Canucks could sustain their performance under Boudreaux. Mm -hmm. That, like, that was the new level for this team. And it might be. Hey, it might be. Three losses in a row does not negate... Um, what was it, 35, 10, and whatever that Boudreaux accomplished? 35, mm -hmm. 10, and 12, something like that. Like an outrageous point pace, right? Um, it doesn't r remove what Boudreaux accomplished last season after the coaching change. But, I, you know, I, I always thought you were naive if you were expecting that from this group without significant change. Um, so far, it hasn't started that way, but that's not entirely out of the question. They'll have a lot to prove, though, tonight in Columbus. Boy, do they. That'll do it for us here on Canucks Talk. Uh, a reminder, we're just over a couple hours away from Puck Drop in Columbus. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah is coming up next. They'll have your pregame show and on TV starting at 3.30. And then, of course, Batch and Randeep with the call. Sat and Bick with your postgame coverage here on 6.50. We will be back tomorrow with more Canucks Talk uh, on Sportsnet 6.50.